0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We got a chance to talk with Renee and talk to her about five types of attraction, five types of love. I'm scratching my head. I I have difficulty dealing with one. Uh, We asked Renee how she sees attraction. Um, Well, attraction has
1: become a a very complex thing to recognize. Um, there are actually a few different types. I like to think of them in five different major types. Um, a lot of people experience them um, together, um, and that's just easier for people. They all think it's one thing, but there are actually a good, a good few that you can experience either together or separately from each other.
0: Okay, well let's begin with what those five are. Let's start with Platonic attraction, how would you describe that?
1: Um, Platonic attraction can overlap sometimes with romantic, so it kind of depends on what you as a person define as platonic. But it's usually just wanting to be very close with somebody without usually any romantic or sexual connotation with it, just kind of like being around a person and being a very close friend with them.
0: Okay, that, that seems to be something that I think all of us can picture. There's always that age-old question of can two people be that close if maybe they are, you know, people who are, let's say, opposite sex or if they happen to be of, of the same sexual orientation, and can it stay that way? I don't. Is that something that still comes up? Yeah, a lot of
1: people, I think, just assume that if you're close together, something's going on. Um, I would, I would say that's probably due to, um, especially today how there's an influx of, um, the sexual imagery in, in advertising and a lot of media we consume. It's, at this point, it's just, it's just assumed that if you feel something towards somebody, it's sexual. Um, so it can be. It can be irritating, I guess, if you're very close to friends and everyone's like, oh, so when are you going to get together or something like that? <laughs> but it, it's really easy if you just respect a person enough and you enjoy being around them. There doesn't have to be anything outside of that.
0: Renee Everhart joining us, Psych2Go writers. We look at the five types of attractions. So we've gone through one. You mentioned another one. That is romantic attraction. How do we describe that?
1: Um, well, romantic attraction, like I said, can overlap with platonic because that's, it's kind of a contextual thing. It depends on the culture you come from, what you define as romantic. Uh, a lot of people would typically see that as maybe going on dates, wanting to maybe hold hands and kiss, or like saying if you're boyfriend and girlfriend, you say you're going out with each other, maybe you want to get married, something like that.
0: Okay, and that again, easy to picture, easy to describe. How about when we bring in the word sensual with attraction? What is sensual attraction?
1: This one is kind of more subtle. You usually think it's part of sexual or occasionally romantic attraction. This one is based entirely on touch. So say you really like holding people or you really enjoy holding hands or having someone play with your hair like that. It doesn't have to be connected to anything else. That can be on its own.
0: Okay. And then aesthetic attraction.
1: Uh, This is one that I'm sure everyone experiences because it's very very straightforward. It's just based on how something looks. People usually think that's sexual attraction because that's what we equate someone's appearance with. Um, When really it's just finding something nice to look at. It doesn't mean you necessarily want to do anything with it. Um, Most people, when they think of this, they try to think of um, how you would look at a picture or maybe a sculpture that you just think is really nice, you could probably just look at it for a while. It's the same thing, but it just applies to people.
0: We're talking with Renee Everhart, Psych2Go writer, and that leads us to the last one that's come up a few times that maybe the other four can often be confused with, or certainly two or three of the other four could be confused with, and that is sexual attraction. How do you know when it's actually sexual attraction?
1: Um, Well, a lot of people like to think that it's because they feel something, that their body reacts in some way, but to put it simply, it's really just the desire to do something sexual with a person. Um, The attraction element is who these feelings are directed towards. So you can think someone's good-looking, but unless you feel like you would want to do sexual things with them, it's not sexual attraction.
0: Renee, thank you so much on Valentine's Day for helping us to dig a little deeper into what attraction is all about. All the best. You too. Let's talk privacy, because that's something that certainly factors into this. And we get an opportunity to do that with Dr. Thomas Cook from Queens University where he is a researcher and someone who deals with privacy on not just a day-by-day basis, but basically a minute-by-minute basis. Dr. Cook, when we examine what's happening here, how do you personally feel about this? Does it bother you? Does it not bother you? Does it make you nervous? Nothing that we've talked about
2: in the many years that you and I have talked uh, for Mike makes me this nervous. It's full stop or serious problem. <laughs>
0: I, okay, um, let, let's stop on that for a second because, holy cow, I mean, you deal with this stuff on a regular basis to the point that you would be at risk of becoming desensitized to it, and you've got a thing that, that's stopping you in your tracks.
2: Yeah, because what this thing does is it's essentially taking the most unique part of who you are as a person and, and making it completely accessible to a virtually endless number of people and networks. Like your fingerprint. Think about your fingerprint. Um, What the fingerprint allowed policing to do was determine with a very, very large degree of certainty who a perpetrator is, and to delineate whether or not that perpetrator had committed crimes in the past. Your face is also very, very unique. Once a face is recognizable from completely unrelated networks and platforms like Facebook to uh, the late Google+, Plus to Twitter... And things like that, anything that you say, any data that has been collected about you, despite the fact that corporations often say that the data we collect about you is anonymized, which actually turns out from a Harvard study recently is not true, all of that stuff gets connected to your face. So the software that Clearview AI has made connects all of your, your digital data trails with something that can't be changed. I can't go in and easily change my face. I'm sure I could do plastic surgery, but studies are even demonstrating that that that's not enough to throw AI off. So what it's essentially doing is it's connecting everything about you online in a way that can't be divorced. And it's not just a security problem. It's a privacy problem in the sense that if you've ever had someone stalk you, if you've ever said or done something that you weren't particularly proud of. I'm thinking about some of my friends who partied really, really hard in the early 2000s who are now working professionals who have to go back and try and delete some of the things they've said and shown on forums. All of this stuff stays with you. And when it's in a security application, there's a lot of risk there because we know that these technologies are highly fallible.
0: So that right there kind of... Puts uh, puts a few questions into all of us because if we're attaching everything to our face, you can't get away from your face like you're saying, then this data double that we create every time we do something online, every time somebody grabs that information and attaches it to whoever our persona is online, whatever information is out there about us, if all of a sudden it's kind of being connected to one place uh, then I'm I'm concerned whose hands this is in, who's kind of pulling the, the final puppet string in this. Should I be concerned about that? Yeah, you should be, because uh, the owner,
2: or the designer of, of this particular technology is not somebody that, that should be trusted. This is somebody who has built a career by creating viruses and phishing applications. So Ton That, who made Clearview AI, um, has been pursued aggressively by the police in the past for creating applications like Happy Appy and VidiHo, which are essentially viruses that prod different softwares, different social media platforms to extract usernames, postal codes, email addresses, and all that sort of stuff. This is the history that is driving this project. This particular individual is also known as a hard right winger. He's been associated with people like Chuck Johnson and Mike Cernovich, he is involved in a group of people who have an orientation about the world that is very radical. And the, the thing that then makes this particular technology really scary for me is the lack of transparency when it comes to somebody's history uh, being invested in a technology like this. So some of you might know that New York Times has been publishing on Clearview AA quite a bit. And the last article that came out, um, the publisher, the writer's name, I'm sorry, what was it? Kashmir Hill she kind of reverse engineered whether or not this technology and the owner could actually be trusted. So what she did was she gave her photo to the police who were using Clearview AI.
3: <laughs>
2: and the, the company ended up calling the police shortly thereafter, asking if they were talking to the media, which means that Clearview AI knows when the police are using the technology. They know who they're looking at. So what Clearview AI did was they flagged that writer at the New York Times in the system, which altered how the software worked around her. So that could have made her more focused by the police or perhaps less so. So there's no transparency here. We have no ability to govern or watch how this technology is used, not just from the policing perspective, but particularly from the ownership
0: group. And it doesn't sound like Clearview AI is the biggest of companies. We're not talking about all kinds of fail-safes and all kinds of things being put in to ensure that, no, no, everything's being done the right way. In what they've been talking about with the New York Times, it was kind of, yeah, we did this to make money, and uh, we don't worry, we'll we'll give it to law enforcement first, and, and uh, we won't give it to any bad countries, I think was one of their lines. But seriously, if this is used for non-law enforcement things— how scary does this get? Pretty scary, Mike. You're, you're a celebrity
2: in the city. You're a celebrity uh, because of your you're voice. Being, you're being worship.
0: too nice. I think, oh, uh, I think nah, people, nah. people hear my voice during the day and say, I think I've heard that voice before.
2: Yeah, I know, but that's my point. You are a celebrity because of your voice. If you're on the bus, if you're in a mall and you're speaking, I'm sure you've had people recognize your voice. Now, what happens if you can't divorce your face from your voice? If somebody uses this tool on you, Let's say it's used in a virtual reality headset because the app has been developed for this. Police can install this inside of glasses to look at a population. The application will literally scan faces through a set of glasses on your face. If that is made publicly because there are intentions to release Clearview AI publicly, you can learn anything about anybody you look at instantly. The the one thing that I value about privacy today, more than at any other time, is clothing, Mike. I know it sounds a little little strange, but bear with me here. Okay. What makes clothing really important is that it's not just a fashion statement. It's a material boundary. It's something that I put on my body that helps me sort of softly, implicitly articulate where I begin, where I stop, and what you're allowed and what you're not allowed to access. If I wear a ball cap or a hoodie, for example, and not a suit, and this has happened to me in the past. When I was lecturing at Western, I remember that there was a day that I went on campus and I wore a ball cap and a hoodie and a big winter coat, and my blue jeans and some runners. And I passed by a colleague of mine. And that colleague did a double take and stopped and said, do you need a hand with anything? And I looked back and I was like, oh, hey, Mike. And the, the guy's name was Mike. Mike said to me, Tom, you look like a student. That was the point. I didn't want to be recognized on campus that day as a professor. I wanted to go in, do my work, and keep my head down. Clothing is really, really important boundary for us right now. If this technology is released publicly, if it continues to be used by the police publicly, it doesn't matter what we wear anymore. It has completely zero consequence. We might as well walk around naked because all of the content about us in the physical realm and all of the content that is collected about us that we have no control over on the digital round all intersects in a way that cannot be reversed. Historically, from this point moving forward, we are entering into a point in the 21st century where our digital bodies and our physical bodies become the same thing, and we don't have any way to negotiate that. When you are dealing with stalkers, when you're dealing with people who have high public profiles, when you're dealing with people who have kids who got into trouble at school, All you would have to do is put on glasses, look at somebody's face, and access anything that you want about them instantly. We need to take these sort of things very seriously, not just from a security standpoint, but particularly from a social one as well.
0: When we're looking at facial recognition software, being able to perhaps compromise people, perhaps young people, being used to get information about people without them wanting it had, when we're looking at what is right and what is wrong? Can someone say what's right or what is wrong? Or if this goes public, I guess, how do we even deal with it? That's a really great question. It's a really important
2: question, and I, I really value you asking it because your question, like drives right to the boundary.
3: <laughs>
2: In the social sciences and the humanities, uh, when we talk to computer scientists and computer engineers about where ethics are, and this is my job right now, uh, part of what I do at uh uh, Queen's University, is investigate uh, data surveillance at a micro level, which means we're always dealing with artificial intelligence, which means we're constantly dealing, dealing with machine learning and different kinds of algorithms inside of your phones that we never learn how to see. And this is literally the issue. As a social scientist, I don't know how to see any of this stuff. But we know from our studies by collaborating with computer engineers and computer scientists that algorithms are biased. Bias inside of algorithms is a really serious issue. And it's one that we don't know collectively in the academy how to overcome. So if if all algorithms are going to be biased, and there are certain situations where that might not be a problem. Even though some people who are listening to this and are my colleagues might push back on this a little bit, and that's totally fine. Uh, when it comes to your search preferences on Amazon.com, it might seem innocuous, right? But when it comes to bias in trying to figure out whether or not somebody is a threat, it's really, really serious. So I I wanted to give you some takeaways here. There have been some really massive studies done recently at MIT and the American Civil Liberties Union that examined this question of bias in the context of facial recognition. And looking at facial recognition from leading companies like IBM and Microsoft found to have over 99% accuracy for white men. If you're a white man, and there's a white male suspect in a the city, there's a very good chance you're not going to be accidentally identified. But if you're a black woman, there is about a 65% chance it's going to get you wrong. This is a serious problem. And it does raise a question of how this happens. I recently saw a talk from a, a wonderful researcher named Dr. Katherine Stinson, who investigates ethics around facial recognition, what she did Mike was she looked at the top five most published papers on Google Scholar about facial recognition machine learning development. And she noticed that each one of those papers had a very uh, similar situation where the people who are designing the facial recognition algorithms use their own faces to train the software. If they are white men training the software, the software is being trained to look at white men which means if you're an ethnic minority in this country or the U.S., there's a higher likelihood that if the facial recognition, particularly in security applications, is going to get it wrong. Th- these these are, are things that we don't know how to address yet because there's a lot of us who believe that all algorithms will inherently be biased. So until we actually sit down and have deeper conversations that are funded in proper forums where social scientists and police officers and the privacy commissioner and engineers can sit down and talk to one another, I I don't think I have an answer for you. But what I can say with certainty is this. We're not ready to let these things out yet. There's way too many risks. There's too much at stake. Far too many people have been wrongfully arrested, beaten up, uh, detained for months on end. I encourage you to look up the story of James Talley in the U.S. from a year and a half ago. Uh, there's a lot like that. Uh, The stakes are just too high. If this thing comes out before we have a a real social democratic conversation about it, uh, we will be pushing into a new historical chapter that we won't be able to, to turn back on.
0: Wow. Well, you've lined it out as serious as it does seem. And I know we'll be talking about this in the future, but Dr. Cook, thank you for the input on Clearview AI on facial recognition software and and kind of the, the cliff that we're standing at the edge of right now. All the best. All the best to you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I want to get into the heart in a different way. I want to look at something that is very prominent among a lot of individuals. Congenital heart disease. And I want to look at the fact that they have chosen today, which is a brilliant move, as being the day to talk about congenital heart disease. Valentine's Day. Take away some of the hallmark. Let's learn a little bit more. Alan Weatherall joins us. He's the executive director of the Canadian Congenital Heart Alliance. And Alan tells us a little bit about people who deal with congenital heart disorders and what makes today of all days different.
3: Well, it's congenital heart uh, patients, of course, they live every life with uh, their congenital heart uh, issue. But today, uh, Valentine's Day is also congenital heart day, which recognizes all those folks born with congenital heart disease, of which there's quite a few, because one in, one in every 100 babies is born with a congenital heart issue of some description. No. Could be big,
0: could be small. With regard to babies, does that mean that we have the ability to diagnose a congenital heart issue as young as an infant?
3: Yes, uh, they even do some tests now uh, for those babies they think that might have an issue. They can do a blood test right as soon as they're born to uh, measure the heart flow or uh, so the oxygen flow, I should say. Um and they can tell. But also they even with ultrasound now they can tell before be an issue. Some of the issues are able to see them with an ultrasound. So many times, uh, as soon as the baby's born, there could be an issue. You've heard of the term blue babies. Of course, that's an issue where there's a hole between the chambers of the heart. So the the good, clean blood is mixed with the uh, bad blood or the dirty blood, whatever term you want to use. So the baby is a bit blue. So there's some some things, but there's many, many issues with congenital heart. There's 40 to 50 types of issues. And, of course, none of them are knowing what causes them. They don't know what to do, and about 70% of the babies that are born need some surgical intervention of some description.
0: And it's pretty amazing to see what can be done surgically when we were at our radiothon for children's talk of five-day-old babies that had different veins and arteries that may have you know, been been switched just genetically. They can switch those back, and the miracles that they can create are pretty amazing. But at the same time, living with congenital heart disease, is it something that we look at now as being... You know, something that can be not necessarily cured, but managed throughout life, or is it still compromising lives?
3: Yes, one of the things I was quickly told was you're never cured; they're only uh, f- repaired. Uh, it's only a repair they can do; they can, they can never fix you. So, when you're, you know, you're a month old or two months old or even a year old, and you have surgery, but you might need another surgery when you're 30 years old. And the real issue today is the fact that be- uh, because of the vast um, advances in medical treatments. Babies now and adults can be uh, surgically um, repaired many times and um, so there's about 180,000 uh, adults now in Canada that were born with congenital heart disease and the real issue is their transition from childhood to adult and how who's going to look after them because there's not that many adult congenital heart specialists in all of Canada. So it was a a bit of a tsunami of CHD patients that will be coming into the um,
0: hospital stream uh, at some point. Alan Weatherall joining us, Executive Director of the Canadian Congenital Heart Alliance. It is Congenital Heart Day. It's also Valentine's Day, but we're taking some time to learn a little bit more about people who are afflicted with congenital heart disease. Now, you mentioned this transition. That happens at the age of 18 when you go from childhood care into adult care?
3: That's that's exactly what it is. And, of course, many times when you're 18, you also go off to university or you go on to a, a career of some sort, and your parents aren't there as much to push you to see, you know, have you seen the doctor, You know, I've got an appointment for you, and so forth. Um, so there's a real issue with, um, it's called lost to care. And there's thousands of Canadians that were born with congenital heart disease that uh, they don't see a specialist until at the absolute last moment, and so suddenly of a need to be seen. And I've heard uh, many stories of people that are 30 and 40, even 50 years old, that suddenly their uh, repair that was done when they were very young, there's an issue that uh, has reoccurred, so they need to be seen again. And, of course, sometimes two of their health records are hard to track down because it was, they were so young when it happened.
0: Are signs and symptoms that something like that is happening going to be obvious?
3: That's a great question. I wish I was a doctor to be able to answer that. But I think a lot of the people would be able to tell themselves. Um, uh, and I guess the, the bottom line is they need to be seen by someone. And, and this, uh, the family doctor might not have the knowledge, but hopefully the family doctor would be able to refer them on to a specialist. And, uh, yeah, just have to be, monitor yourself.
0: Well, Alan, we really appreciate you bringing some attention to this. If someone wanted more information, where can we send them?
3: Well, the best spot is our website. I know it's, uh, here's a, a quick way to say it. It's ccha4life.org. That's ccha4life.org, and all sorts of information is there.
0: Alan, thanks for all the work you do to help make this known and help get the information out about congenital heart disease. Thanks for the time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.